Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace, so please listen only at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Will we ever learn more about this mysterious Trismegistus? Are creations actually just full of laws? And what are the classical elements? I think one of them is their pride? There's no surer sign you're being played than being certain you've grasped your opponent's intent. Dread Emperor Benevolent. this chapter is a chapter of setting up again, which is great. And while by its nature as a setting up chapter, not too much really happens. Not only does everything get in position to, if I may, happen, but some important seeds are laid. Uh, that is to say, Kat has a conversation with a magical lieutenant of hers that goes swimmingly. And there's a little bit of charge before it's interrupted. And she goes to a little dinner to hang out with a general. And on the way there, she chats with, you know, just some, uh, what's the setting appropriate word for like a troubadour, a scald? Is that what they call them? What what are they in the setting? A pop star. A pop star. Yes. But before we get into that and the wandering pop star, we have something nifty. This chapter begins with a quote by Dread Emperor Benevolent. By name alone, I would like to know more. But... This is something that I think Kat not only falls into, but fell into in her battle against Juniper. What was that quote from the Dread Emperor again? That there's no surer sign you're being played than being certain you've grasped your opponent's intent. What did Catherine do in her combat against Juniper? What was she certain about? I mean, yeah. Her, she, she, Kat makes a lot of assumptions and is certain about them uh, regarding her opponent's intent. She is certainly a uh, work in progress, our Catherine. So the first lines in this story, in this chapter, the first lines in this chapter are, it's from the Trismegistan theory of magic. And I just appreciate that E.E. is willing to just say words at us. That mean a whole lot to me. That mean a whole lot to you, my dear co-host. That mean a whole lot to all of you out there, our dear listeners. But Trismegistan? Are you just going to throw out 
hermetic nonsense at us. We'll get to it, though. I was going to say, that only lasts, that's only up in the air with a question mark next to it for five or six paragraphs, fortunately. Yes, unfortunately, Catherine seems to treat magic much like I treat philosophy, or at least much of philosophy, because Catherine is asked in explanation of what these theories are, haven't you wondered why an apple falls down when you drop it? And Catherine's response is simply, gravity seems the likely culprit, unless you're telling me it was the frame up all along. And that's, I, I really do appreciate investigations into deeper things, but we have to recognize even science, which holds far too strong a reign these days, but philosophy, all sorts of things, we have to recognize that they are good for what they are and not necessarily very much further. Why is an apple red? Well, the scientists would say because the wavelength bouncing off of it is at however many units of measurement, and that's what we perceive as red. Sure. A philosopher can get into the weeds. They talk about ascribing perceived phenomenological quanta to presupposed objects, which are not monads in themselves, but rather, and it's like, no, 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 wrong. Also, idiot. Apples are red because that's their color. Like, like, I get that there's things worth investigating, but in real life, can we just deal with real life? And that's how Catherine wants to treat magic, which I appreciate. It's just also her real life has a lot of magic being thrown at her, so maybe calm down a little bit. Yeah, there's a there's a fine line between philosophy jargon and magical jargon and the extent to which they're actually useful. Uh, because the detail... Magic is one of those things in many settings, and I think to an extent here, where the details of that jargon, the the precise nuances that you're speaking about actually do matter in a major way. Cat tries to Gordy and not magic a little bit. Um, and uh, for the most part, it works, I think, for her. But uh, an understanding of something that is basically built into reality probably would serve her well, yeah. I don't know who Gordon is, but I do know that he's trickier than just having a knot. You can't trust him. Yeah, that's true. Uh, with that, as we start talking about these laws and magic, we get uh, a little reference to the classical elements, which, depending on where you're drawing inspiration from, can be a number of different things. Oftentimes, we in the West have the, you know, the classic air, sky, fire, water, earth, that kind of thing. Uh, apparently, in Colernia, one of the cl classical elements is void, which is maybe the equivalent to air in a i don't know like where it where it would get slotted in but it's clearly not that kind of thing it's not it's not air necessarily it's not nothing because it turns gravity off <laughs> uh it, it's definitely its own thing here um i don't know that void is something that's brought up much going forward but there's a it, it's interesting the language that's used here because uh when Kat's getting her little lesson here, the line is exposed to the classical element of void. It gravity tends to fizzle out. It's it's not that gravity can't exist in the same place as void. Like void is like complete absence of literally everything else or something like that. But rather that gravity fizzles out. There's a, a struggle there. Fizzling to me like invokes the idea of something being there and then being smothered of a. a it, it's doing its best. It's trying to continue and can't against the pressure of, in this case, void. Really makes me wonder what void is and why it goofs up gravity and why that's the the, the specific element that does that. I don't know. It's, it's. I feel like there's a lot here 
obviously. And we aren't really in, we're not really invited into the actual understanding of this, which, you know, fair. It's apparently pretty advanced magical theory, but I'm very curious. Advanced magical theory, but also the result of some advanced observations, at least. Science might be a misapplied word in the setting, but void is a concept which I don't think is necessarily obvious. The idea of total absence, not in the demonic sense, is difficult to deal with because in the world, absence is almost, if I may, absent. We don't encounter it. Nature abhors a vacuum. And until the invention of, what was first, Dyson, Hoover? Uh, I'm not sure. Either way, before those machines, there was literally never a vacuum on Earth ever. And if scientists disagree, well, I'm a literature scholar, so checkmate. But they have knowledge of the void, which is not observable but by its effect. And that's really cool. Just how do they, how have they manufactured the void? Through magical processes or through what we would consider natural processes? How do they observe it? How do they register that it was the void? How do they measure, is there air here? Do they know how sound travels through it or rather doesn't or does it here? I'm curious. And we don't get to know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's it feels like they would get to things like that that are more advanced than what we have in a you know a similar technology level, uh, you know historically speaking through magic. Like it feels like that's the difference there. But I also wonder if it's for this one specifically if it if there's any chance that it did come from uh, a little bit of dabbling in the demonic. I, there's demons of absence. I don't know for sure that those two things are directly correlated, but there's a chance that observing demons that wipe things from existence would lead to the understanding of a classical element that is nothing, literally nothing. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so vacuums are by nature unnatural, that is to say demonic? Yes, that's exactly right. I'm not sure that's quite orthodox, and in fact, that might be a heretical view. Yeah, Kat also is tossing around the word heretical here. Um, Wow, what a good transition. Yeah, it was great. When her um, romantic interest, I guess, in her her conversation with Cassiopeia, we are getting a little bit of information about laws of creation. There's creational laws, there's original laws. Um, And there's an argument presented to Kat that... uh, there are original laws which are so intrinsic to not just creation because that's the next step here but to reality itself to existence itself that they apply to the gods and cat's response to that is that sounds a mite heretical cat's talking to a young woman who was let me double check educated in praise uh i don't know that heresy is really something that they're too concerned about especially since i don't know the the theology of the gods below is so ephemeral it's so hard to grasp there's not a lot of like specifics on making sure that they're the most important thing they're they're not revered in the same way so heresy just doesn't exist in the same way i don't think in praise as it does in callow and so cap's concern over blaspheming against the uh, the gods above here is definitely a strange Callow and gut reaction, I think, and I don't know. It, it's 
it's a weird thing to be concerned about when you're talking about magical theory. But then Kat, Kat is thinking about this, and uh, we get this line from her. Uh, sure, the priests admitted that the gods had limits, but according to them, they were self-imposed for the good of creation. First of all, that's interesting. The gods are limited, but only because they chose to be. There's a, a restriction that they placed on themselves. Um, and again, because this is coming from the House of Light specifically, I'm wondering if they are if this is only talking about the gods above, or if the gods below are being lumped into that as well. In which case, why is the House of Light arguing that the gods below restricted themselves for the benefit of creation? And if they didn't, are the gods below unrestricted? Are they bound by the gods above within certain limitations? I don't know. There's just a lot of theological implications here coming at us in these couple of paragraphs about magical theory that are just very interesting. And uh, it's are is the House of Light com, ha, does the House of Light have a hierarchy of the gods below are stronger than the gods above, and that's why heroes have to be so dedicated to the cause? Are they equal? Is it a permanent struggle? Are they lesser but more you know there's so many possibilities here that we're just sort of getting hinted at in these couple of lines that are just fascinating this is why it's a shame that our protagonist was raised in callow and is so accustomed to sermons of the house of light i wish there were a portion of the book where catherine went to the house of dark to see what they have to teach the house of dark yeah we don't really get a lot of mention about that one huh no ee kind of had an oversight there a classic but i do think it's a very nice philosophy there the gods have limits, but according to them, they're self-imposed for the good of creation. What a convenient theology. I think the theodicy, how can there be a loving, omnipotent God and evil in the world? Well, how do you settle that? It's been settled in many different ways to many different rubrics of satisfaction. It's not the gotcha it seems to be at first glance. As long as you're working within a system of theologies that has addressed it it has addressed it in a way that can be satisfactory but this is just a neat answer to the question i don't know the gods can do anything but it wouldn't be good if they did so they won't and therefore that's how it is wraps it up very nicely not much room for questioning that there's it it, hmm. it leaves i think the question that it leaves is what would happen if they weren't so restricted or was it the right call to put these restrictions in place? Uh, things like that. Cause there will always be questions about the nature of the power of uh, a deity of deities, but yeah, having a, <laughs> a limit that's hard coded, I suppose that's not the right term. Having a limit that is self-imposed. I don't know. It, it, definitely adds credibility that they were willing to do that kind of thing i guess it's it's interesting speaking of the all-powerful we do learn finally that trismegistus is the praisey name for the man who became the are you ready for this one dead yeah. king can you believe this i hope you can a little heresy is to be expected and great cool we learn a bit more about the dead king we know basically nothing about him yet we'll learn a very little bit in the next paragraph because he turned his whole nation into the undead and invaded a hell. Cool. But the Precy name for him, I like that a lot. It's really easy to pretend that people retain their names throughout history. I don't know what the actual name of Alexander the Great was. Something like Alexandros, maybe? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay. But Julius Caesar was not named Julius Caesar. That some of those sounds aren't even the ones they used. 
He was somewhere in the neighborhood of Julius Caesar, right? More Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, that's what they And one. his parents, Joseph and Mary of Nazareth. Just keep the last name. Joseph would be of Nazareth, maybe? Yeah. And Mary was probably of Nazareth, right? People didn't go far. But Abraham did go a long way for a wife. And that was only, what, 2,000 years before? Anyway, Jesus <laughs> of Nazareth and his parents, Joseph and Mary, were named, what, Yeshua, Yosef, and Miriam? Even what's the most recent figure I can think of? Joan of Arc wasn't named Joan. Heck, Albert Einstein was not named Albert Einstein. He was probably called that in his lifetime, at least. But no, he was certainly called that in his lifetime. But that wasn't what he was named, at least not initially. A very modern example that a lot of people would be very familiar with is it's it's pretty common for immigrants to change their name to fit more easily into the society they're moving into. Uh, We see this with all sorts of immigrants into America specifically, but like it's very, very easy to see things like this, especially from cultures that don't have a Western language, a language that English speakers can pronounce particularly well. So you get East Asian immigrants who take very American names. Same kind of thing. That's their American name, their real name. You know, that's the name they go by and whatever documents say whatever, it doesn't matter. That's the name they go by and that's what, you know, matters here. But it's also an American name or having a different name based on the culture you're in or the culture that you're the people the culture that people are in who are talking about you you know that that's a very common thing it's just easier to track for you know historically famous people and it's wild how far names can vary i went with western names in my examples into western or near western into western language but when you get to languages where you have those separations i don't know what the proper modern chinese is much less historical But I do know that I'm not, what, historically accurate in saying, oh, yeah, Lao Tzu. No, nobody in China has ever been named Lao Tzu. Also, there's conversation about who Lao Tzu may have been and blah, blah, blah. But more importantly, those aren't Chinese sounds, or they're in great part not Chinese sounds. And we can even see this in names of countries. Germany is not called Germany. The Netherlands are not called the Netherlands. A lot of Hungary is not called Hungary, I'm sure. Hungary, Hungarian, Magyarozsig. Oh, like the Magyars. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, makes sense. Hungary's yeah. <laughs> not at all called Hungary, and it's right next to Western Europe. Right. Depending on your definition of Western Europe. Yeah. Though also Europe's really tiny. Russia is right next to Western Europe. Sorry. So I, yeah, Neshama to Trismegistus doesn't make any sense, but that's probably not the route. In fact, Trismegistus is what kind of rough Latin for the thrice grand or thrice miraculous, thrice great. He was really, given a title. Really roughly, yes. <laughs> he was given a title, turned into a name. Sure. It's cool. Extremely. I mean, Caesar. Augustus Caesar. You know, little baby Augustus. They said, your name is August Caesar. That is your name <laughs> we are giving you, little baby. When Mr. Caesar and his wife had a baby together. Right. Because, that was Caesar's son. Yes, Augustus was famously Caesar's biological son. Rome was, in certain ways, from a modern Western perspective, from modern American perspective, progressive in imperial inheritance, sort of. That's that's a stance to take, yes. In Ancient a limited Rome capacity. Within, in terms of imperial inheritance, Rome was very progressive. And 
I wouldn't be wrong in saying, historically speaking, they were all like gay or something by modern American standards. Right? I mean, that's just yeah, how the ancient world was. Yeah, you get into and some, they identified yeah, as such. Yes, and they actually the term gay directly shows up in primary sources. The Latin word gay. Right. Exactly. <laughs> actually, the Latin word was homo, which you see in science now. Ah, there it is. And science has gone woke. Yikes. But we're talking about creation laws. We're talking about immutable laws. We're talking about Pyotr Kropotkin's favorite subject. And we have our interlocutor saying, I'm curious where you encountered those terms to begin with. King Kirul half asked, her tone implying that if it wasn't something I could talk about, she would understand. She'd always been good about things like that. Catherine, you're an evil military leader slash metaphysical wizard who can kill people on a whim both practically and legally and yeah you're nice about it but people carefully implying you don't have to talk about something it's pretty typical in common life hey i noticed you seem stressed this morning boom and someone says yeah it's fine now and you leave it alone or they say yeah i had trouble burying a body great now you're bringing them into it they're legally culpable this is normal you i i realize you're in love but well, I realize you're in lust, but yeah, there it is. <laughs> she'd always been good about things like that. This is your underling whom you've known for a month and a half. They're all like that, and you don't know how she is. Chill. Yeah, and but... to be clear, that's not bad writing. That's Catherine. Right, but I mean, we all know that Kennedy is especially good at that. Like, just think about how good she is at everything, and how amazing she is, and perfect, and beautiful, and just the best. You know, I was actually forgetting how beautiful she is, and just the best that. That and really adds a lot of helpful context. Frankly, Thank you. That's why I'm here to talk about how hot cats underlings are. It's, it's in my contract. Cats, it's not just cats underlings who are hot and can rain death from the sky, though. Her overlings also can. Yes, or even indirect overlings. Her overlings in law. Her, <laughs> there you go. Her future unwilling her, uncle. Yeah, more her or less. Avuncular overlings. Because they end up talking about what's going on okay so warlock's got some kind of demi plane or something going on in order to be testing things outside of creation which is wild and that's just a side note and it's not a big deal but catherine's realizing there's probably a tactical reason why he said about side of creation it means he could cut loose of the heroes came knocking i'd read the histories after all warlock had ever warlock had ever only been deployed as a combat asset when my teacher was willing to write off wherever the battle was happening and he was already really hot and just, I, I know how he gets his name. I know that the Sovereign of the Red Skies is not just Sovereign, but hashtag actually reasonably sized king. But <laughs> king so tall that he can throw an arm over Captain's shoulder. I'm still not over the prologue. Yeah. But, come on. No finesse, just boom. There comes a point where you don't need finesse anymore. And Warlock reached that point uh 20 40 60 years i don't know how old he is when he was young <laughs> i think he reached that point at the exact time where he earned the title sovereign of the red skies yeah i'm not really completely down on their chrono personal chronological timelines they're just all old but not like real life old just old to be they're old for their age right exactly and their age is middling we uh Cat Cat is analyzing this, kind of thinking through Warlock's strategy here. Um, that he's not just hiding in his tower uh, and letting Summerholm, to use her language, spiral out of control. 
he was setting up his battlefield for a confrontation. And this is interesting because what's going on here is you've got the heroes in uh, an occupied city, but it's been an occupied city for the last 20 years. For most intents and purposes, Callow, or at least some of the major cities, are pretty well pracy controlled. They're not Callowin with some invaders. They're they're pretty well like from the, at the top. They're pracy, and the heroes here are not. I, the heroes are basically you know insurgent style. They are inside enemy combatants, but they are not being tactically hunted in Summerholm. They are not the hanging out in Summerholm, doing little strikes, being hunted by the powerful warlock and squire and whoever else. They came to Summerholm with a specific purpose in mind, killing warlock. And regardless of the tactical realities, I mean, we had, this is kind of mirroring the conversation that um, Warlock and Cat had last chapter. Uh, regardless of the tactical realities of what the heroes were doing, even if they weren't here for Warlock specifically... The nature of how villains and heroes relate in this setting, I think it's cool that no matter what, yes, Warlock, if he wishes, can be the beacon to which the heroes are drawn. They are going to confront him in his in his stronghold. He's the the magical villainous power in the city. The heroes are going to come to his bastion. They're going to storm the keep. They're going to fight him in his lair because that's what heroes do. It makes perfect sense that he can just hide in his tower no matter what, because the heroes cannot resist coming to him. It, you know, obviously, eventually he steps out and handles things in a different way, but his long-term plan prior to Cat getting here makes perfect sense. And it's 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 cool to see his you're thinking like a general instead of a named guidance advice to Cat last chapter being so clearly demonstrated here. Uh, in sort of how he's handling things. It's just, it's it's neat. It's well done. Warlock can trust that reality itself will work the way that Black has taught him and that he's witnessed and learned himself. Whereas Catherine is making the rookie mistake of still just trusting her people. <laughs> that is having some issues trying to decide exactly how Halloween she is in terms of her persona her ruling persona i guess her leading persona um she wants to be able to trust callowins but she realizes how can i trust somebody just because of where they were born when people like she mentions knock and somebody else have been with her for since the beginning and she can trust them they've earned her trust but the person she mentions there is robber and i have to say yes he's amazing yes he's got her back all of that but saying you trust Robber is certainly a choice she is making in this moment. And good on her, I guess. But wow, that's a... <laughs> that's good a, on and bad for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but unlike Robber, there are other people in her legion who maybe aren't in her... Aren't deserving of her trust maybe because they're not in her direct chain of command? Is that how the legion works? So, well, here's the thing. Cat is uh, taken, you could say. Cat is uh, feeling things. Cat is... She's drinking a lot of wine, but still incredibly thirsty, yes. She is so terribly thirsty. And where is this? Here. It says, gods, but Cascadia was so pretty. I still didn't know if she had any interest in women, though. I thought about asking Hakram, but that would have been as good as declaring an interest, and I wasn't quite there yet, still. Unlike with pregnancies, it wasn't like 
fraternization, more like sororization, am I right, was against regulations, so long as the people involved weren't in direct chain of command. And like, I know that there, there's a structure now that you're general and you have less of a super direct one. It's still a direct chain of command. It's just a chain now. They're all under your command. It's still directly. This is, there are seriously major ethical concerns with everyone in your legion catherine you you hold on a this it's not appropriate honestly it's not appropriate with anybody in the legions named are at the head of the legions plural like the the system the organization yeah other generals may outrank them with their specific legions but if cat were to hop over to the ninth and pick a soldier to be um fraternizing with there would be ethical concerns there <laughs> and i just can't wait for hakram to find out about this so that he can speak some reason to her hakram walks in on kratos wait what does he walk in on what does kratos, he walk in on kratos biting her own lip i was about to say her lip and there's this it's a moment where cat is fishing for tell me how much you want me and uh Hakram walks in on this, and the description Kat gives, because we're seeing this through her perspective, is Hakram eyeing them both curiously, but he knew better than to ask. Hakram is Hakram. He knows the game. He knows what's happening in this situation. He knows exactly what he walked in on. I guarantee you this isn't curiosity so much as, like, I don't know, like a sardonic, what's going on here? Like, <laughs> God, I... Catherine is so fooling herself in acting as though Hawkram doesn't know what's happening and is holding back from asking out of politeness. He's not asking because there's nothing to ask. It's written on both of your faces. It's uh, Kirby's cheeks are burning. Like she she recoils like she's been burned and her cheeks are reddening. They're sitting across from the table with in front of each other with half empty wine glasses like <laughs> This scene is so funny because Catherine is so in denial about what it looks like. She's not in denial about the situation at hand, which is a dinner party. And apparently she was she holds the authority, which is nifty because authority is just with two generals and a name coming in, but one person being new, one person being old. But there's a lot of interesting interplay of authority. Apparently Catherine has the authority that she had her people go in and find out that 20 servants were indisposed at the last minute and had to be replaced by relatives, and that now they have the replacements in custody. None of them were armed. Some of them had military service scars, but that's very circumstantial because... So so the history of Callow... Yeah. Uh, but Catherine's like, okay, I can't do anything about this, but we also can't not do anything about them. So her instructions are, keep them under heavy guard. At least two lines, one of them with munitions. If someone with a name mounts a rescue operation, they should toss they should toss sharpers in the cells before getting the hells out of there. And like, she's not wrong. That's a very solid defensive strategy, but ooh. Yeah. Uh it's not a good look. But... There's not a lot of good looks here as she's making strategically solid choices. I'm not here to deny that for a second. Sure. But she wants to get a bunch of troops in the palace so that they can be ready for in, in case anything goes down. Mm-hmm. Again, she's probably just being overcautious. Sure. And Juniper thinks Juniper walks into the room announcing that Afalabi will be upset if that happens. 
And Catherine just says, the general should have taken care of this mess before we arrived if he wanted to have that right. And she's right still, but this was an orphan girl in a conquered land with this is an orphan half orc in a conquered land. She has nothing going for her. And just a couple of months later, she's saying, well, the general should have taken care of it. Now I'm taking control. <laughs> her father is such a good, bad influence. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's she's she's climbed to a pretty high station very, very quickly. And it's just pretty comfortable being there immediately. And good for her. But she takes such a swiftly negative or dim viewpoint of extremely powerful people she's never met before. As we see in her next block of description, where she acknowledges that Four Heroes was nothing to sneeze at, she wasn't going to risk Hakram in a fight <clears throat> yet. So her only backup in the initial phases would be Apprentice. And really nicely setting up for the universe to prove her wrong in a long and beneficial arc for the entire length of the story. She says, how useful the Soninke would actually be in a life and death struggle remained to be seen. He hadn't given me the impression he was someone used to the rougher side of being named. And like he's not used to the rougher side in terms of roughing it, but academically, I, a question just for you. How useful do you think Masego Wakesa's son would be in a fight? It <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, he's really a scholar first and foremost, but there's no way the warlock isn't angling those studies in a certain direction, at least to some extent. Not even necessarily aspirationally. I don't think he's wanting his kid to go into the family business, so to speak, because he isn't really interested in the family business, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, pragmatically, the warlock is always going to be a target. Therefore, Z's is always going to be a target. You... And he's in a good position to inherit his father's position right. after he is successfully targeted. Exactly. And I mean, Warlock, again, very pragmatic. He, like all the Calamities, I'm except Ranger, know that their time is limited. They do have an end date. They are unbelievably successful, but that can't last forever. It won't last forever. They know that they have to have a successor and yeah, having his son be there, great. It's also though, this this is interesting because we know Masego is being incredibly talented and unbelievably potent and capable, and he can do all of these great things in a combat situation. He's lethal on the battlefield, terrifying, but he's not really a combat named ever, even later down the line. He's, you know, he's the apprentice right now, which doesn't necessarily mean one thing or the other, but it definitely, given his lineage, as we were just talking about, leans in a direction, perhaps. But the Hierophant, that is not a title that to me things of somebody who's flinging fireballs and melting people on the battlefield it's about higher understanding it's about approach to uh you know apotheosis or understanding of apotheosis at least and that's you know what he is he isn't a combat first named the fact that he's so good at combat really speaks to him how talented he is at all aspects of his field he's extremely powerful and if need be he'll misuse those powers in the service of slaughtering armies oh sure sometimes you just got to get those out of the way so you can get back to your studies which is vivisecting gods right nothing so base as slaughter just vivisection 
<laughs> we here at Podcast Guides do, however, want to note that we stand against vivisection in all its forms. We do? Well, against might be a strong word, but if you're vivisecting something, given the setting, you'll be trying to vivisect the gods. And we will not allow you to get quite so far. Because, my dear listeners, I believe it's time again for deicide and applied blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on, unceasing and unerring. Today's star-crossed attempt comes from Monty, who wrote in earlier. Monty has a couple of things to say. The first Monty brings up, when Kat meets the Calamities, it, she's acting as though it's the first time she's seeing them, and Monty asks about whether the Empress especially, but also Black and Warlock, would have their faces publicly known. Monty says that they were thinking about this, this is before the printing press, there wouldn't be that many places for citizens to see what their leaders look like, but that the Empress seems like she would be too smart to not take advantage of how mind-bogglingly she, attractive she is for propaganda. Great point. Leaders love to have their faces out there. Prior to being able to do mass-produced prints of people, the way rulers did that, and I'm sure this is the way that it works in the Empire, coinage. New monarchs loved to mint a new batch of coins with their, you know, typically profile on there. Uh, famously, Rome has this. We, we, Roman coins are great for this because you can date them based on who's em which emperor's face is on there. And that's interesting too because this brings us back to our talk a while ago about uh currency differences between Callow and uh price and how the imperial currency is only sort of making its way into Callow even now and there's some pushback against that depending on where you are that would explain why cat maybe hasn't seen her the imperial coinage the denarii aren't in circulation where orphans have access to them perhaps so that's that's a really cool layer of things uh so i really appreciate that getting brought up the 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 coinage thing is so fascinating i'm sure that malicia is taking advantage of it however cat's a poor orphan she probably wasn't looking at malicia's face on her money very often monty also has the nerve to offer a correction from our episode about book two chapter four return in this we took the opportunity to display our great and abounding patriotism as we discussed the values of universal education and how default it is in our world. And indeed, it is also the norm in praise. Monty notes this was not historically the norm, because if you want to rule a country with an iron fist like a monarchy does, educating your citizens can actually be a bad idea. As, Monty writes, knowledgeable peasants are more likely to rise up and overthrow their rulers. This is why it was the norm for thousands of years for most people to be unable to read. But once democracy was popularized, literacy spread like wildfire. Monty proposes that Price is different because its fortune is from trade, and educating citizens in this scenario makes them better at their jobs, which makes the country rich. And why haven't the citizens of Praise risen up and overthrown their rulers? Well, the man-eating tapirs. Monty, we appreciate, deeply, your attempts, but they have risen up and overthrown their rulers, regularly. That's pretty much the basis for Precy government is other people rising up and overthrowing the current ruler. Yes, they typically come from nobles, but the current dread empress was 
just like a regular gal who was really hot and then rose up from there. Very talented. Like, I, I don't want to act like she's only powerful because of her attractiveness. Obviously, brilliant and capable. But the the thing is, a despite the fact that the current ruler may be opposed to people rising up, race as a society encourages that. They want the power to be an ambitious target for basically anybody. That is built into their society. And if that's the case, you want everybody to be possibly educated. You don't want somebody who has no idea what's going on to be in charge. There's also sort of the other side of that. Lineages are going to get established based on people from the lowest class to the highest. And those lineages are going to be able to lead to education. If somebody rises up from a peasant farming family and becomes Dread Emperor, they could very well choose to educate their family as a, you know, just a, this is what you do for the people you care about. Suddenly this family has education and it's getting passed down. That That is one side of things where it's just with how porous the borders between the classes are in the sense that anybody could be at the very peak. I think that lets education bleed a little bit. But I think there's probably a more pragmatic reason why, especially now that Black and Militia are in charge, and that's heroes. Black keeps an eye on orphanages in Callow because that's where heroes come from. He keeps an eye on the streets of Callow because that's where heroes come from. If your entire population is uneducated, impoverished, and oppressed, which, I mean, there are a couple of those things, sure. That's a breeding ground for crazy heroes, which we just don't hear about. And that may just be because the people are educated enough that they're not constantly rising up as a population instead of just as an individual. People are rising up into evil power rather than a rebellion of good in praise. There, there's a, I don't know, Black's education system is probably leaning people towards practical evil. It, it makes sense that that would be there. I think the trade idea, the, the idea that they're creating magic things to export, sure. But I think that Black's regime and Militia's regime is more concerned with heroes than it is with making nice jewelry. Thank you for writing in, Monty. And should anyone else have any equally foolhardy attempts, please write in. Our email is thelongprice at gmail.com. You can find us on the failed Elon Musk project at The Long Price, or find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Monty, despite our affected disdain, we really do appreciate these viewpoints and contributions, and we assure you that the plague of locusts coming for you is simply a formality. We stand unvanquished. You all remain below. Back in the story, uh, we have... Uh... Juniper, not so subtly nudging Kitsune out the out of the room to you know have a we're the important people now we're gonna have a conversation go go deal with your mages. Um, she's she recognizes just like Hawkum did that there's something going on here and Cat oh Cat does her best to try to cover for the situation and says uh, I had a few questions for her earlier. It would have been so much better if Kat had said nothing. She just, like, the awkward attempt to... Uh, we were talking Legion business. <laughs> it's so transparent, and I love Kat for it. And so she has no right to just be meeting with a high-ranking... Meeting with her most important mage? Right. You don't need to explain Amazing. it. <laughs> so good. But it's not as though she continues to admit guilt... Oh, wait. Never mind. 
As her intended lover leaves, she pauses by a still grinning Hakram to daintily kick his ankle. First of all, confirming everything. Secondly, violating the military procedures in a probably expressly punishable fashion in front of Catherine herself. But also, this is the exact behavior which Catherine does, will, and has encouraged. You say... Decorum is not part of Catherine's legion. No. You say punishable. Is Hakram above her in rank? Hakram's rank within the legion is kind of weird. Uh, yeah, but I don't know. Does that actually get, grant you legal status until you actually have the name? I, I doubt it. If you can parlay it. I guess that's fair. That's that's the law with names. I guess if Hawkham went to Black and said, hey, I'm getting a name, and Black confirmed with Warlock, Hawkham would have some level of power from that. If Hawkham killed her, and when being brought up in court said, well, no, I'm named, and they said, no, you're not, and then the name manifested, because names are dramatic like that, what are you going to do? I mean, yeah. She's already dead. That said, cat. Just cat. Just Cat. But so they head to the palace. Yeah, they head to the palace, and Cat quickly recovers from this whole thing uh, and issues some orders to, or has already issued some orders to the troops at that are guarding the gates of the palace. Uh, they're honestly great orders. If a lone individual in a cloak approaches the entrance, shoot them until they stop moving, and then a few more times to be sure. There's no... She even goes on, don't bother hailing them, just unload your crossbows. This is phenomenal in this setting with Kat's educational lineage coming from Black. It's excellent that, hey, if somebody does something dramatic, kill them on the spot. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a practical guide to evil thing to have happen, and it's such a cat thing to have happen. I love this, this order. It's so good. She knows the rules of the setting, and she knows her enemy. Not just that he'd be that figure, but why he would be. She writes, If the lone swordsman intended on making a dramatic entrance, he was in for a rough evening. And while she recognizes he's taken to irregular warfare, dang it, he is that kind of person. He is, which is why a comment she makes pretty soon here is so weird to me. Uh, she says... What comment is that? She says to us, the readers, who she knows personally, I doubted the heroes would try picking off the warlock's own... She uses the word adopted, eh, kind of weird to specify there, but I doubt the heroes would try picking off the warlock's own adopted son in broad daylight. Why would she doubt that? William's a grade A goober. He would absolutely try to do that. He would he would fight the warlock in broad daylight just if he happened to cross him. This is, I, I think she forgets that this is the lone swordsman. He has no sense of scale. He, his goal in this city is to kill a calamity. <laughs> Like, he, he would absolutely go for Z's if he saw the chance, or would plan to do so. He's not the only fool in the city, though. Oh? Because as they show up at the palace, Catherine finds out that General, Catherine finds out that General Afalabi had posted only a tenth of his own soldiers. You are meeting Catherine Foundling, the most interesting story in the kingdom right now, frankly, or at least in the Empire. She's the most interesting story in Praise, and one of the two most interesting stories in the kingdom, the other being the people here to kill your kind, Afalabi. But in addition to that, this is a town under siege by the people, metaphorically under siege, by the people killing military officers. Again, you've got the most interesting one showing up right now. Also, 
a Calamity's son is going to be showing up, apparently. Also, Hakram, but you don't know anything about him. Also, an all-but-Calamity's daughter is going to be showing up, right? Yeah. Istrid is not a Calamity, but she's Calamity tier, all-but, and her daughter's there? And you've got a tenth? That's nothing to... The Lone Swordsman could handle them alone. In fact, we'd be better off doing that because he's a Lone Swordsman. <laughs> I mean, it, it is worth keeping in mind that this is just at the hall entrance. There are definitely other soldiers in the palace. What's that going to do? Who's going to be trying to come in except for the people who can kill everyone with their brains? Yeah, it normally I would say, well, the average person doesn't know exactly how strong named are. There's a lot of mythology around them. But a general in the legions, Black has had conversations with Afalavi about what to do about named. And the answer is not throw 10 regulars at them. <laughs> but Pat is also still sort of figuring out what to do about named or how to recognize them, at least. Um, we get uh, Kat meeting with or seeing some musicians being interrogated by soldiers on their way in. Great security stuff going on here. Uh, and one of the musicians is chilling out, sitting on a chair, holding a lute, and drinking the strongest alcohol in the world, I guess, it seems like. Uh, obviously, in this moment, Kat doesn't recognize anything going on particularly. It heads in that direction, but Kat didn't know about Hawkram's nascent name, obviously. Uh, she got a bit of a false positive when talking to Ime where she wasn't sure on her situation. Now we've got the bard here. Later on, Kat is obviously fantastic at recognizing names. It becomes her role to be able to do things like that. I think it'll be interesting to see when Kat's ability to recognize other named immediately and directly starts to manifest. I think that'll be a cool trail to follow. It'll be interesting to look for the uh, seeds of the warden through that paradigm, through the recognition of named rather than the commanding of, because that's also part of it, and wasn't something I knew to look for on my first read-through, so I'm, I'm excited to, to pay attention to that. But, no, not even a but. But, I don't think Catherine's the only one who doesn't truly recognize what she's dealing with. Because, while obviously the bard is barding, this is her doom, this is her end, this is the only thing that will cause upheaval in her existence since time immemorial and i get the feeling that it's just an appraisal because it's convenient because she might be able to use this story but she doesn't know what this story really will be or she wouldn't allow it to have to be developing the way it develops because i think at this point the bard could just pretty easily arrange the story to take out catherine cat's nothing yet well yeah cat's nothing yet but that's almost a bit of a defense against the bard fair he does have a name, though, so I, it's not really much of one. Akra might be safe. That's a tough one to call, actually. No, he wouldn't be, would he? Because the bard was still poking around at Kat when, before she was warden. There was that whole, the bard was trying to guide her new name. So the bard would be able to interact with Hakram. Like, metaphysically. Obviously, physically, she could. I don't think he goes for humans, and the bard typically is. <laughs> yeah, that, that is what I meant. Definitely. You got, you got it. I mean, the way you winked when you said physically. Oh, I just constantly wink whenever I'm mentioning Hakram. As do we all. <laughs> but we get a little bit of information about the current iteration of the bard, the current body the bard is wearing. It's a little unclear exactly how the bard works. At this stage, she's I've just never known a bard who worked a day in their life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
uh, we have the bard who is from the phallusocracy of Osher. Osher? I hardly know her! Thank you. Um, <laughs> we get a, a little bit of uh, information uh, here that I think is interesting. Uh, obviously, we get that uh, the Ashurans had... We, we know a little bit about the Baalite hegemony. There it is. Um, as they show up here and there in the stories, the reference, it's kind of a Venetian-derived situation. They're on the ocean. They've got colonies all over the place. Obviously, the word Baalite alone. Um, but that the Ashurans had stayed closer to their Baalite roots than the Dominion. That's cool. Uh, kind of makes me think that the Baalite hegemony is, you know, a little Phoenician and that the Assurans are more Carthaginian, I guess. I don't know. There's a there's a cool line there that uh, I want to continue following and see. We don't get a ton of information about these two places. Obviously, they're not on screen a lot. Uh but the Dominion has some screen time, and so I'm hoping that on this second read there we can use that to dig out some details about the other two and uh, see what we can figure out about this shared lineage. Well, one thing that they have, I think, is strong livers. At least the Bard does. Also a name. Uh, she says that her liver is cast iron. Uh, isn't cast iron one of those metals you actually have to be careful with because the wrong sauce melts them or something? Whatever. Regardless... I think the bard is being silly here because she's named. No, livers are high in iron, I believe, right? Oh, okay. Maybe you're right then. Sure. She has a literal iron liver. Which is also a helpful tip if you're ever traveling somewhere and your clothes get wrinkly. <laughs> a little life hack there. Uh, we we see this conversation progress. We know how it ends with Cat clocking that something's going on here. Um, but at this moment... The Bard offers the most suspicious line we've seen so far with, besides, I am not a mere Bard. And Cat is coughing from having consumed some of this, uh, let's see here, devil water, as she calls it. So she doesn't fully latch onto that statement. I think it takes a few of them before Cat's fully on board. It's hard to say exactly where she starts to grow suspicious, uh, but... Cat's very much out of her element in this moment because I think she kind of lets that slide a bit um, because that is that is a line that a normal person does not <laughs> does not say uh, you know except maybe a bard a lowercase b bard yeah to be fair yeah but they end up drawing the attention of the commanding officer who wanders over and says Lady Squire is there a problem and Catherine remains just that insightful. Right. She waves off the, the officer and says, there's no problem, you know, none at all. No, no problem at all. Continue your work, Lieutenant. Uh, which I'm mentioning here for something that I'm going to talk about in a moment, but just calling out another instance of Kat apparently shrugging off what's happening here, not noticing who she's speaking with. But the bard is aware of who she's speaking with and doesn't seem to care. And Catherine thinks something's a little odd about that because she thinks and says, most people would be a little warier at the revelation they've been talking with a villain, I murmured. And, like, yeah, villains are scary, blah, blah, blah. But revelation that... I don't care if your face isn't everywhere, and I don't care if you somehow are walking in a way that doesn't demonstrate your authority, because you have people around you over whom you hold authority who are trained to treat you with a special kind of ceremonial deference, 
also this is mute there's a musician coming into an event where villainy and the villainous are frankly to be expected yeah alpha lobby is not named but is as villainous as you can get without being named and there's a dinner between that person and the special named person who's coming i don't think that you got to be special to figure out that you might be special you're not that special that people won't think you're special especially given that you've got you're flanked by a, a giant giant hawkrum and it's still a pretty giant juniper istrid's daughter of the red shields i think yes yeah yeah cat uh, is still getting used to exactly what it means to be named i think and where that carries weight and where it doesn't uh remember she's what 14 at this point she doesn't really get how the world works regardless as opposed, though, to, as opposed oh. to the end of the story when she's still just about 12 right exactly but the the bard then comes back at that with most people would have been passed out before they got halfway through the flask besides you've yet to set anyone on fire so at least one of the rumors is wrong and while at the end of this conversation cat has at least a strong suspicion about what's going on here well suspicions about a piece of what's going on here fair 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 the lowest level of what's going on here uh the bard is playing this so well she spends this entire conversation constantly putting cat on her back foot without being aggressive she's she's setting up cat to react rather than think he's never insulting cat in a way that can be called out she's never being rude or you know forceful in a way that will that will make cat suspicious but rather constantly making cat react in a way that makes cat feel like she's the problem it's the oh there's rumors about you i guess like offhandedly mentioned that so that cat is ashamed and thinking about what she's done there's the i'm gonna share the drink and now cat is coughing because she's put something in her body that humans were not meant to survive there's i'm a I'm not just a bard, I'm a minstrel, like this big playing dramatic thing that makes perfect sense for this musician who's a little quirky. There's, it's constantly happening and it's really, really well done. And it makes sense. She's the bard and also, you know, the bard, the wandering bard. She's got that in her skill set and she's a master of this kind of manipulation, which makes it all the more impressive when, as we'll see here in a bit, Pat is able to get through that, but not just get through it, get through it so casually that she doesn't let on that that's what's going on, that she is able to hide her understanding and play along with it for the entire conversation. Both of these people in this conversation are doing really, really well. We spent a lot of time just ragging on cat for her social ineptitude and she is she performs phenomenally in this little uh confrontation i suppose encounter i'll have you know though that catherine may have had trouble seeing through the bards barding but when i read this for the first time i was like oh ho, catherine oh catherine don't you realize when we read the heroic interlude there was a wandering bard and this is the wandering bard the heroes are here catherine i can see the entire story from where I sit. So I just want everyone to know that I was so smart and had the whole thing figured out. Nicely done. Thank you. What wasn't so nicely done was Catherine's betrayal of her people. Because apparently, apparently there are mixed reactions on this Callow Squire. Some of these reactions are thinking that having a Callowan high up in the Imperial ranks might solve some of the most undesirable aspects of a Precy, of a Precy occupation. 
but the bard notes to her, they might not be as loud as the stone her to death crowd, but they do exist. And Catherine just takes that part in stride because she knows what being Callowin is like, but oof, there's a stone her to death crowd, huh? Who wants to stone her to death? Yeah, that's definitely stone. That's definitely a little rough that that's, you know, cats people and yeah, it's only fair. She was officially associated with hangings and you know the oppressor government but big oof big oof but the chapter winds down with cat saying you know it's a pleasure to meet you almorava almorava what do you think almorava by saying it was a pleasure to meet you almorava and heading off and then catching her lieutenant on the way out and saying the woman i was talking to she won't have any weapons but i want a pair of crosswomen keeping an eye on her at all times here's the reveal we don't know exactly when Kat clocked the bard, but she did. And she's confident enough to have two of her soldiers keeping an eye on her at all times. This is where this conversation goes from us thinking that there's a piece of dramatic irony here where Kat is missing something that we clearly see to us realizing that we don't understand exactly what Kat's up to because this is written so well. It's entirely a conversation. We're not getting... Here's, you know, Kat says this nervously, or the bard says something and Kat's eyebrow quirks or whatever. You know, we're getting... And her fingers clench. Right, exactly. We're just getting the words. And so from our perspective, Kat is fully hook, line, and sinker buying what the bard is selling. And then she walks away and just casually says, hey, keep an eye on this. Really well done. I love this encounter this scene is so well done all the way around the characters in it are phenomenal i i just love the way it ties itself together like this excellent way to end this chapter and get us set up for the next one awesome love it and yet the irony is now doubled because we know that Catherine, in fact knows nothing she has not picked up anything that wasn't given for her and she is not ready for this but We are, unfortunately, ready to end this episode, because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata, as we discuss Tracy Dinners, Halloween Desserts, and a Goblin Barbecue. Ooh, arson? (laughs) Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Life of a Wandering Wizard by Serge Quadrado. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy backing track was Save As by Toby Lane. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided with a generous license of pixabay.com slash music slash. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Elon Musk's project, whatever he's naming it at this point. 
the long price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash pgtee. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one Patreon-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always claim it, never the name, and our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 7, Reception. Reception.